Hello everyone, welcome back to Sound Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you again. If this is your first time listening, I'm Alfred Faber. I'm a film student at the Australian Film Television and Radio School here in Sydney. Uh, most of the work that I do is in location sound recording and sound design for film and art, but I love talking about anything film. I love uh, art which combines different sensory experiences, and uh, I love learning from people more talented than me. Um, in this podcast, I chat with people who work in film and art about how they combine sight and sound. Today, I've got a super special guest, uh, the English auteur director Peter Strickland, who IndieWire called one of the most strikingly original filmmakers working today. His debut feature, Catalin Varga, premiered at Berlin International Film Festival in 2009, and since then, he's only gone up, with three other features, Barbarian Sound Studio, uh, Duke of Burgundy, and most recently, In Fabric, which premiered this year at Toronto. He works mostly in Eastern Europe and was in Australia for In Fabric's Australian premiere at uh, MIF. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. He's a really interesting guy, uh, so I hope you enjoy this. And by the way, if you do enjoy it, or if you've been liking the podcast, or if you're one of the four people who actually regularly listen to this, um, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, it means a lot. I really love getting feedback. So just, or send me an email at um, contact at soundperspective.com. I, I always love to hear what people think. Anyway, uh, here you go. Hope you enjoy. Peter Strickland, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so, um, Peter, for people who might not know much about your career, can you just give a little uh, chat about how you started up until, like, Catalan Varga? Uh, it might take up the whole podcast if I do that. <laughs> um, well... I got into, well, you know, like, like most people, I was into film, um, mm. but then I took it very seriously from the age of 16. Mm. So that must have been 89, 1990. Um, and I bought my first Super 8 camera around that time and just just filmed stuff without, you know, editing or anything like that, just getting used to the, the camera. Um, and eventually putting my short films together, you know, editing them and so on. Uh, and But there were long gaps because, you know, everything costs money. Um, mm. I did my first 16mm film and we shot it in 1995. Um, but it was hugely expensive. You know, we had to hire Steam back to edit. Then there was another long gap. Um, and But yeah, just applications, 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 rejections, rejections, and so mm. on. Try to get into film school, that, that didn't work. Um, but you just keep going, you know. You, um, the best film school, I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but the best film school was just to make my own films and make my own mistakes, which I still do, of course, <laughs> um, and learn that way, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, like, the process of making your first feature, Catalan Varga, happen sounds pretty... Um, that was, sounded like a pretty interesting story. Well, I reached a point where I just thought, um, I'm never gonna, never going to get funding. There was just something, I don't know what it was, but it's just a numbers game, really. I, mm. I just couldn't find an, an entry point. Even though 
with my short films, I got to know pe- people through film, um, but I could never get to that next level. Um, yeah. So I had I had an inheritance. Um, so I was in this very unique position of being able to put a deposit down on a place to live mm. or um, make a film. But I thought, can I really make a film? Because, you know, you'd hear a film about films like Small Time by Shane Meadows or El Mariachi by Rodriguez. But the publicity was very misleading because it always um, emphasised what the films cost to shoot, not what they cost to finish. Mm. Um, so it was that dark chasm of post-production, which was a bit of a mystery to me. How much would that cost? And you could kind of do the nuts and bolts of how much it's going to cost to shoot it. So um, we shot it in Romania um, and I paid everyone what they would make in their day jobs, pretty much. Yeah. So, which was not that much for yeah. a, a Westerner. Mm. Um, uh, so we did it on 30,000 euro yeah, wow. to shoot and edit. But the post-production is what killed me. That cost 74,000 euro. Mm. So that was the, the final sound mix and scanning the yeah. 16 mil necks onto 2K and then recording them back on, onto 35 mil. Yeah. This, was, this, this, was, this was before... DCPs became prevalent. Mm. Um, it took many years, you know. I mean, I start. I wrote it in two thousand and three. I started it properly in two thousand and four. In terms of you know looking for locations, we finished it in two thousand. The very end of of two thousand and eight. The shooting itself was was really quick. That was seventeen days, mm. but the lead up was very long. It was yeah. about two years roughly, and the come down was very long. It was two and a half years. Mm. Um, when you're shooting, you're off. Everyone's together in the same place. That was quite straightforward it was intense but it, it was you know quite a nice memory but mm. um, before that you know I had a day job <clears throat> so in between you know weekends or I'd get a week off here and there and my boss was quite kind in, 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 that, in that regard would go to Romania but just I was I was living in Slovakia so I just get the train to Romania I didn't have to fly there yeah just get a night train yeah. and was the shooting in Romania for economic reasons or was it Part of the story for you? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I needed mountains. Mm. Um, so I could have shot those mountains in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I chose Romania for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I was living in that region, um, not in Romania, I, sh- I should add. Um, it was easy to get to. That yeah. was a huge factor because, you know, you have great mountains in Albania, but mm. it was very difficult to get to from Hungary. Mm. Great mountains in Bosnia, um, all over that part of Europe, uh, Ukraine. Um and I met the woman who was going to play the lead through a friend who lived in Transylvania. And through her, from her theatre group, all her friends ended oh, up in the film. Yeah, so it was actually cool. really straightforward. Um, so, it, yeah, and, and, you know, but, you know, I don't see the film as being about Transylvania where it's mm. set. It just happens, you know, is, is this kind of mythical, folkloric feel to it which you know for me it could be anywhere really yeah it's the yeah. forest it's the mountains it's kind of this dark mythology but i don't see it as specific to where we we, we shot it even yeah. even though we we keep it in in the language of yeah. romania which is that region it's um seike hungarians and romanians mostly what was the experience like for you directing a film in another language though that must have added another level of complexity on it for you uh, yes and no, because um, the advantage was all the actors were friends. So there was a there was a great harmony there, 
that they trusted they trusted they trusted each other and they had the same ways of arriving at a scene because you know when you work with other actors they come from such different schooling mm. that they have they can exasperate each other sometimes I've I've seen that so there, there was um, the actors spoke English yeah um, I did my best to work my way through the script in Hungarian mm. um, but obviously yeah it was difficult I, I um, it's not something I would repeat <laughs> in a hurry I mean I might repeat it one day but um, yeah. I felt a little bit like 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 a fraud but I'd feel I feel I feel I would feel more of a fraud. If I had them speak in English with funny accents. Oh yeah, yeah, I hate it when they yeah. do that. I mean, have you seen Chernobyl recently? I have seen that. Yes. Yeah, I well, thought... only the first episode. I've only seen the first episode. Oh, right. But I, I really liked that decision of theirs to just let people keep it with an English accent because it ended up being more authentic for me. It would have been even better if they just had actors oh. actors from the Ukraine yeah, to do true. it. That would have been number one for me. Yeah, yeah. Subtitles. I mean, come on. Yeah. You can read subtitles. It's not that but, difficult to read subtitles, yeah. is it? But, um, I mean, I know they have commercial um, pressure. Yeah. So I'm not... I don't want to be too... Um, what's the word? I'm not going to get on my soapbox, you know, about this yeah. whole thing. But, um, but no, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, the ideal is to have in the language where it's set mm. and second best is what you said is to just not care about it and just have them yeah. speak in, in their own accents mm. or have a dub you know um, that's the, the other thing um, like the Italians you would have um, different actors from all over the world then you'd have a clean dub done in English and a clean dub done in, in Italian mm. Mm. so um, you have the option in post you know in a DVD mm. you can watch it yeah. in Ukrainian so yeah in because I guess most of it is in the, the Ukraine with subtitles, or we just switch it to English. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of like the artifice of dubbing. It's a lot to be said for it. I mean, I like accents as well, but yeah. in comedy, I don't like it when it's a yeah. serious film. I mean, yeah. I, I love, you know, there's this thing called Dad's Army in the UK, which. Um, oh, I love Dad's Army. I grew uh, up with Dad's so, Army. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for it when it comes to comedy. But yeah. um, if you're making a serious film, then, you know. Yeah, is it really the way to go? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, um, what were you were saying about the post production process of Catalin Varga is a good segue to your second feature, Barbarian Sound Studio. Because one of the things I thought when I saw Barbarian Sound Studio was I felt like it was a film made by someone who had had a really terrifying time in post-production of something like this almost horror film set almost entirely in a sound mixing studio. Do you think it was influenced by your experience <laughs> well, in any way? I wouldn't say, you know, I had a horrifying or terrifying time. I had a certain, I had certainly had a hard time, that's for sure, um, yeah. as most filmmakers do. Mm. Um, I think with your, I mean, with your first film... Um, it's quite rare to do it all in one go because you just can't pay people enough. So you, yeah. you're relying on favors. You're paying people very cheap rates. So mm. if an editor or a sound mixer is doing an advert, they're going to do that first. Fair mm. enough. But then you're on this downtime, mm. and there are points in Kotlin Varga where I was just not in control of my time. Well, actually, I'm never in control of my time as a filmmaker, but. <laughs> But you know, you just would never know when when the next slot is. Mm. Um, so, I think the edit was quite quick. If I added mm. up all the days, I think it was you know, I think f between four and six weeks. Mm. 
but um, that was spread over a long time. Mm, mm. Um, and it was just getting the money together, was it? Well, getting the money. I mean, I I, I ran out of money. I, I had a lot of money, you know, but that ran dry. Um, so I had to go back to work, you know, I had to, because I was not working for a period during that film. I left my job in Slovakia. But then I realized I, I can't support myself. I need, I need to just, you know, so I, I took up teaching. Um, so it's a juggling teaching, that, it's kind of juggling my day job with the editor's day job, with the mixer's day job, with the film. Mm. It, 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 it was, yeah, long. But Barbarian, I wrote it before that experience. Oh, really? Yeah. Right, right, right. So I think you may, the mood of Barbarian might, might have been informed by... Mm. Um, my experience in post-production and I think I certainly did tweaks on the script I mean I was, I'm always yeah. changing scripts until the last minute so yeah. but the the core of the film was um, before we, we entered post-production mm. making I, I mean I guess it's close to a horror film Barbarian Sound Studio I found it pretty mm-hmm. unsettling at least and making uh, an unsettling film about sound post-production would have been uh, sound designer's dream, I guess. And how much do you kind of give away when making the soundtrack of the film? Do you delegate a lot or are you the kind of director that sits there 24-7 and provides really detailed notes of exactly what you want? You mean the soundtrack or the sound mix? Oh, s- sound mix, I guess. Oh, sound mix. Sound uh, design. I, was, I was there. Yeah. Um, Foley was more tricky because that was outsourced to Finland. That was very uh, tricky. What, but the was actual... the, what was the name of the guy who... Heike. Is he that Finnish Foley artist who does, like, everything? I believe so. Yeah, I know there's this one Finnish Foley artist who's just does heaps of American films as well, and he's very... Anyway, sorry. Do but on. no, I, I, I think I, that's something I regret quite a lot, which is no disrespect to him, but mm. um, I want to go back to being there for everything that's the way to do it really we did yeah. it with, with Vargo and I was there for the folio I was there for the, for the mixing so yeah I'd say 90 between 90 and 95% of the time I'm there for the sound mix right. I think when they're setting things up you know the track laying I don't need to be there mm. but when it comes to, to the, the the detailed work absolutely yeah. I mean so Barbarian it was it was unique because we had two mixes mm. we had Marcus Moll Douglas Cooper we had a supervising sound editor called Joachim Sundström. We had a dialogue editor called Linda Forsen and a guy doing track laying and effects called Chris Christa Mellon. Mm. So quite often we were all, all in, in the studio together. Mm. Uh, it was a long, quite a long process. Um, but I mean, it depends on the film, but um, I, I enjoy that a lot. I enjoy mm. the sound mix. So it's, it's, it's a shame to miss out on it. Um, and I, I do think outsourcing Foley is... It's a shame, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think I want to kind of stop all that. <laughs> um, it's, you know, yeah. You would have liked to have been there? Of course I would, yeah. absolutely, of yeah. course. I mean, that that is actually the best part. Yeah, it's but, interesting, but, isn't it? You know, but sometimes the schedule doesn't allow it, sometimes the budget doesn't allow it. Um, mm. But you get to a point where you think, okay, I've done four films now, I can start, you know calling the shots yeah I mean not that I don't call the shots to some you know but <laughs> call, calling you know a few extra shots yeah um, but so Barbarian was um, the idea was to make a diegetic soundtrack yeah that, but yeah. mix it in a non-diegetic manner yeah so you feel you're hearing a score but actually yeah. it's not a score it's in, in the room yeah um, 
so really be as faithful to that idea as possible um because i think by doing that i think first of all you're you're grounding the film in a very concrete sonic logic mm. because visually and thematically it can drift off sometimes but yeah. I, th- I think i think having a very solid rule for the film kind of locks it down mm. Um, and I think within that, there's, there's there's a lot of scope for deceit to mm. deceive the the listener, um, because you know where is the sound coming from? Is it coming from you know the voice? Is it coming from yeah. the mouth? Is it coming from the tannoy? From headphones? I think what was tricky was perspective, mm. um, given you know this glass you know between the the, the mixing room and mm. the auditorium and headphones and so on, um, and the idea of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and how true to be to that. So when Toby Jones has his headphones on, he's the main character, therefore you are hearing what he hears. Whereas when Fatma Mohammed has her headphones on, you're not hearing what she hears, you're hearing what mm-hmm. maybe he would hear or being in the room, just hearing a mm-hmm. tiny little tinny sound. Yeah. Um, but there are occasions in which we ignored that rule because of dramatic license, that something would need a more, you know, a suspension of disbelief, as yeah. in with with the witch, you know, when yeah, you know, she doesn't have headphones on, but you can still hear the music. So you you yeah. entered that some that realm of disbelief somewhat. Yeah, yeah. I loved how it was kind of a really quiet film, and it made this sense of claustrophobia, especially when you never actually left outside you never it was always either his flat or the studio and you never went outside it was so like claustrophobic and terrifying yeah <laughs> well yeah I, I guess i had enough of being outside with my first film you know <laughs> i didn't have to suffer any ticks on my yeah. legs or anything like, like that yeah um but just just, just going, going back to the soundtrack it was also um we didn't use that many effects mm. um i think well no it's not true because the screams a lot of stuff was pre-mixed. Mm. That's something worth talking about. Um, so the screams, mm. we recorded them. It was mainly Eugenia Caruso and Cotta Barch. Mm. And they were sent to a whole bunch of people. But I think, I mean, the one who did the most work was um, Andrew Lyles. Mm. Um, so he sent them back. They were processed. Mm. But again, I'm not giving notes to him. We just He sends so much back that I can select what is the best stuff to use. Mm. Um so again, with, with 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 doing a soundtrack, it's it's not all done in the mix. Mm. When we did Cotton and Varga, the scenes that are spoken about the most in relation to sound design are actually records that I played. Mm. The same way Guy Ritchie would play a record, it's just it's not rock and roll. It's um, music concrète. Mm. So it's the scene with this suicide with all these birds, almost sounding like like the violins from Bernard Herrmann's score to, to Psycho. That was a piece by a nurse, oh, yeah. nurse with wound called yeah. Chiconia. That was like yeah. a, from the early eighties. Mm. So we didn't do any work on that. We just mm. played it. But it it sounds like sound design, and mm. that's what what interests me is when there's borders between music and sound design yeah. become dissolved, and yeah. you're not sure what what is what. Mm. I think uh, a brilliant example of that was in Fabric with um, Kevin of Antimatter. That's their name, right? Yes. I keep forgetting their name. Yeah. <laughs> their um their music was phenomenal in that. Thank you. And it just kept moving between like 
Yeah, there's this kind of canon in film, isn't there, that that you got a distinction between sound design and music, and I love when that becomes removed and it's just sound that you work with. Well, I mean, the the the, the clearest example of that would be the ending where there's a fire alarm, mm. and it's actually the band playing on synths. Oh yeah, yeah, running yeah, it yeah. through a whole load of distortion. Yeah, um, that's not us in the sound mix. That's mm. um, Cavern of Antimatter. Mm. Um, I mean, it started off as a Mick Jagger cover version originally. Really? Um, yeah. And then Tim <laughs> mutated it, mutated it, yeah. mutated it, and it sounded like a began to sound like a fire alarm, mm. which informed the script in a way. You think, yeah. okay, let's put a fire alarm in here. Let's work yeah. backwards. What causes the fire and what causes... Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, there was a very kind of intimate relationship between the music and the writing sometimes. Mm. Um, but yeah, for me... If I watched that film without knowing anything, if I was in the audience, I would just assume it's um, sound design, that fire mm. alarm. But no, yeah. it, it, it's a piece of music that was remixed, essentially. Mm. And um, how did you get in with Cavern of Antimatter? Like- well, I was a fan of Tim's older band, Stereolab, oh, okay. right. who actually reformed. So that I, mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up playing in Australia quite soon. Right. But I don't know. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, I don't know the facts. But um, so I, I mean, they really shaped the way I saw music, sound, and even film. I think mm. you know. I mean, they were a very, very important band in, in the 1990s. The way they used these very obscure influences, but also using easy listening music. Back then, it was deeply, deeply unfashionable. It was almost like ridiculed. Mm. And now it's kind of hipster music, where it has been for the last. 25 yeah. years but but you know but we're talking about the, the, the early 1990s yeah um, when grunge was happening mm. and they were finding out they were finding 60s stereo testing records and Moog synthesizer mm. music that was almost like like, like for kids mm. Martin Denny this kind of Hawaiian music but then the, the other, other the other influence was avant-garde music and crap, what, what, what we call crap rock this kind of German psychedelic rock very repetitive and very sometimes very atonal mm. um, and finding connections between these polar opposites mm. and not being gimmicky not being ironic but just finding this new language mm. so for me that was the, the, a great example of postmodernism, and it kind of tied into a lot of directors really uh, working at that time you know Jim Jarmusch who was obsessed with B-movies but also like Ozu and Bresson mm. um and the cinema I used to go to called, called the Scala. Um, Jane Giles, who programmed the films, again, there was no distinction between a Bergman film and a Russ Mayer film. Mm. It was all up for grabs. So Sterilab really embodied that. Um, so I met Tim through a mutual friend. I initially wanted to put out one of his records. I have a record label. I and, didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah well, I, that, that's the problem. No one knows that. That's why, <laughs> why, why we don't sell any records. But, but um, so, yeah, we just got talking, really. I mean, I put the record out. We met up for a, a noodle soup, which I splashed all over my shirt. And we just got talking about film. And I knew he was into film. And, but yeah. just the more we spoke, I realized, actually, you know, why, why don't we do something? And yeah. I didn't have, <clears throat> I didn't have an idea. You didn't have it in fabric yet. No, I didn't have mm. it in fabric. And I, but I, in the past, when you write, well, when I write, I listen to a lot of music to get me in that mood. Mm. But the problem with that is I get locked into the music. I get glued to it. Right. And then I, it's not fair on the musicians afterwards. Like, I, I, it's very dangerous to say, you know, make it sound like this piece of music. Mm. I think 
the idea is you want to break free from that and do something that other people will copy. You don't want to be copying something else. <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought the way to do that is just to get me to do some demos to get me going, and yeah. then that will inform the film. And obviously, we speak about references. We can't avoid it to some degree, but I think it's very important to to let the musicians be themselves. And mm. I think the danger is when you hire a musician, let's say you want them to be like Hans Zimmer or Modicone or whatever, and you have to always remind yourself why you asked that musician to work with you. You asked that person because you like what they do. Mm. So why don't you let them be what they are? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, so... Yeah, but you know, again, it's, it's a very, very intimate, long process working with, with, with someone. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I have to look up to him and find out what he wants. You know, he's, he's, he suggested the, the Celeste... An instrument I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of. Um, That's something like a harpsichord, right? Is it's it? got a more globular sound. I mean, right. I, I to be honest, I didn't I, I didn't even know what it looked like when he, yeah. when, he, when he when he suggested it. But it has this kind of very soft between a bell and, and a music box. Right. It has like that kind of quality to yeah. it. Um, but I, I guess we're in fabric. Yeah, we just didn't want to do anything traditional for this film. I mean, again, it's picking what is right for the film. We didn't want mm. a score as such, you know, with strings and so on. It mm. worked for the previous film. Um, but yeah, score is such a delicate thing and sometimes it's best to have no score. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, sometimes yeah. people try to over this needs score. Does it does it really need, need score? And, yeah. Um, and something uh, you did, I think you did have been Duke of Burgundy as, as, as well is you kind of mixed like baroque. It sounded a bit baroque, like harpsichordy type music with this droney electronic stuff. Is is that a genre you're interested in as well? Well, again, that came from buying the first album by um, Cat Size, which is Rachel Zephira. Mm. Or Zephira. I never quite. I never actually. <laughs> I never got around to asking how. How which. Had to emphasize it which, which syllable, but um, Faris Badwan. Um, yeah. So he's in a band called The Horrors, um, as well oh, as Cat yeah. Size. Yeah. So <clears throat> she comes from a classical background. Mm. Um, she's a multi instrumentalist, but also composes her own work. Mm. Um, Faris comes from a, a rock background. So I think just naturally, if, if you ask those two to work with you, that's mm. what you get. You get mm. those different polar opposite sensibilities and yeah. turning into something hopefully exciting really mm. um, so again that was just very organic you know once you've asked them to, to join you that, that's that's kind of the direction you're, you're heading in yeah um, so really I mean I, again w- w- when, when we first spoke it was I think when I first speak to musicians it's mainly about the mood yeah. I'm trying to convey yeah. and the instruments what instruments are we, are we going to use mm. Um, I think early on I was very concerned with style you know sound like this sound like that but you know I think style I kind of style is important but I think it's that has to come later yeah I think it's it's, it's more about the, the texture mm. first and then you kind of work your way from that so if I can ask what was the mood in, in fabric then what would have your what would <laughs> your brief have been there yeah it's very hard to because I think again we were playing how did I describe the mood I think a lot of it was trial and error with Tim. Yeah. And the same mm. with, with previous musicians that, you know, you send this piece of music, well, this doesn't really have the mood, that doesn't mm. have the mood. And you just narrow it down until, okay, mm. this piece here, that... So when Tim did a um, a piece for Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Barry Adamson making love, mm. um, 
it didn't suit that scene, but it had the mood of the film. I said, mm. well, why don't we use this? It was quite a romantic piece with harpsichord. Mm. Why don't we use this piece in this other scene, but have it come back as a, as a motif? Mm. Um, you know, with the love scene, I wanted something darker, a bit more ominous, because I think love scenes tend to be too lush when they're done. Yeah. It's too, you know, what's the word? Sentimental. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think it's better just to have no music in love scenes. Mm. Actually, I think a lot of people these days say don't have any love scenes full stop. But anyway, that's, a, that's another conversation. But um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to cast my mind back to the words I used, um, which actually brings me back to when, when I'm on set with actors. Sometimes I can't say the, the words of a mood I'm after and I'll just mm. play the music. Oh, really? You play oh, the music? I mean, even when yeah. we're shooting sometimes. Yeah, cool. Because cool, that cool. conveys the face just responds to that music, mm. and that's the that's the look you you after. And I think yeah. I know Sissa loved it when we did the Duke of Burgundy. Sissa Beverly Knudsen, she really got off on having music played to her on yeah. set, and Marianne Jean Baptiste especially as well. Mm. But obviously, if you have, if you have a dialogue scene, it's a bit trickier. But yeah. um, otherwise, you know, we just let it run. Yeah, cool. And on the topic of Duke of Burgundy, um, what I found interesting there was the sound of moths being a motif throughout it like that scene where they're sitting there and the um the lecturer person oh, plays the, the mold the, crickets yeah, yeah 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 and um what i mean obviously that was kind of the main motif of the film but why that as a reoccurring sound motif like <laughs> um <laughs> i don't know i mean for me it was more it wasn't so much the sound; it was just the idea of these mole crickets cocooned in this, going going into hibernation. Mm. Uh, they, they kind of really suited both the idea of this love story going into hibernation somewhat, mm. this very autumnal feel, mm. um, and also the idea of Evelyn. She's kind of going into hibernation in this kind of bondage box or trunk or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, but also, you know, I, I like the atonal element of of those mole crickets. Um, it sounds like a avant garde noise piece. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. actually, it's not. We didn't do any manipulation to it whatsoever. It's a mm. pure field recording. Mm. I can't remember who did it. It was either David Rag or Jim Reynolds who mm. who did it because um, they used to work together. They were um, orthopterists yeah. studying um, grasshoppers and crickets, mm. and the moth sounds were actually. Um, that was done by Marco Prime, mm. and I had that recording from ten years beforehand. Yeah. Um, and I always wanted to use it somewhere, and it's kind of m- m- made made sense for this, really. Mm. Um, it, it was again, I think all these sounds, it's 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 much more intuitive. You know, the reason why you use them, it's just something very sensual. It's very um, these are very tactile sounds, and and actually, it, weirdly, they connect with this thing I only I only discovered after the Duke of Burgundy with this thing called ASMR oh yeah um, autonomous yeah. sensory meridian yeah, yeah, response yeah. Um, because a lot of the time not just with my films but also with the music I was listening to I didn't have an intellectual response to it um, yeah. and when you read about ASMR you think oh my god it doesn't actually matter that much you have this very visceral or sensual yeah. response to certain sounds yeah you just feel it yeah, and yeah, it, it does yeah, I mean, put you into a certain frame of mind. It does. It almost has this kind of trance-like quality to it, mm, mm. which again, you know, I'm a big believer in film as a kind of hypnosis. Not, mm. no, not, not hypnosis, but you know, it's this kind of sleeping state that um, I always wanted to make films that you could fall asleep to and you could wake up and you wouldn't worry too much about the plot. You know? <laughs> That's a really cool perspective on it. Yeah. Well, some would argue that's not a cool perspective, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and for the past two films you worked with, you worked with a uh, sound editor, M- Martin Pavey? Pavey, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so what led to you wanting to work with him again? Was it a, it was a good collaboration? Yeah, it was a good. Yeah, it was good. I mean, the problem with Martin is he lives so far out the way. It's just very difficult to get there. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, he works with Andy Stark a lot, right. who makes Ben Wheatley's films. Right. So that almost came came like a like a package, really. Um, so you know, when you work with someone new, how's it going to go, and this and that. Um, but no, it's it's been great. He's um, he's pretty much a one man show. Mm. And he works from home, which obviously, again, with filmmaking, you have to kind of take budget into account. Because in Barbarian, we we hired Delane Lee in London, mm. which is you know like a it's like a proper film mixing yeah. studio. So um, the Duke of Burgundy was was a much lower budget. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, I go to his loft essentially. Mm. That's where we work, and you know, sometimes we don't really have a plan. We just go through the film bit by bit, and work our way through it and mm. what, what does this scene need and like with mm. the Duke of Burgundy I think initially it was quite a busy mm. soundtrack what we came back with from shooting mm. and a lot of it was just making it emptier yeah yeah uh, and the sounds have more of an impact when they've got less to compete against yeah. um, I remember with the um, laundry hand washing um, Martin would just with his mouth would make bubble sounds sometimes really? you know but mix them quite low yeah. um, but also we got a lot of field recordings which and that was I didn't want to use library sound I mean, mm. I'm not against library sound but I think it has to have a reason we used it in, in, in fabric for the crowd scenes and it really worked because because that was the memory of my childhood of library recordings of the high street mm. but with the Duke I didn't want that I wanted to <clears throat> locate or find individuals who had field recordings so still use them but I think the the approach the mentality behind it is different mm. it's still someone else's recording but it has an identity that yeah. it has you know you know the name of the microphone they used that you know the temperature yeah because these field recorders these field recorders were, were very very specific so yeah. and we went to great lengths to credit that in in the credits yeah to have you know the recorder listed mm. the microphone and so on so i think it just gives it something um it just gives it a different feel i don't know yeah. if it's better or worse i mean that i can't really answer but mm. um one last question that every interview has to end with what are you working on next what's what's next uh, do you well, know well i was going to shoot a film now i mean really? i actually cancelled my trip to australia to shoot this film we had it pretty much cast we even had the location and something went wrong i'll leave right. it at that right. <laughs> Um, something always goes wrong. I mean, I have three films I'm working on. I'm, really, I've yeah. um, I had this New York film about nightlife in Manhattan before mm. in in the in 1980. Mm. I've been working on that, on that for seven years. Um, each year we think it's going to happen, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. I had this other film which is about to go, it didn't happen. But I'm working on a kids' film as well. Oh, cool. um, so three films are three films I really want to do, but. Uh, what I find is it just gets harder and harder with each mm. film. I think your first film is impossible, but you reach this wonderful sweet spot, assuming you're lucky enough to get recognition for your first film. You have this mm. wonderful thing where your second film is just, everyone's there with open arms. and It's just yeah. wonderful. And the Duke of Burgundy as well, to a degree, but then it gets difficult again. Okay? I think that, that I think that, 
the beginning of your career is really difficult and your mid career is really difficult. Yeah. I don't know. If, assuming I get beyond that, how <laughs> when you get to the Mike Lee or Ken Loach stage, I have no idea. I mean, mm. I'm kind of cynical about where film will be by that point, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's so difficult now with, with streaming and which, which I think is really good because I think it allows a lot of people who can't afford the cinema yeah. Yeah. or don't live in the city to yeah. see films they couldn't see. Um, but where's the balance between allowing people? who don't have a chance to see films, give them that opportunity. And also, but give filmmakers an opportunity to make low-budget films mm. uh, and to have that um, exist. Because, yeah, if if audiences are not paying to see films, everything's going to run dry eventually. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert on these things, but it seems we're in a weird state at the moment. We haven't haven't found this balance yet between different ways of seeing things. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much again to Peter for agreeing to be interviewed. Um, thanks to Melba Prestos and to Lily Ford for stills. And as always, thanks to John David Legulon for the music. Hope to see you next time. <laughs>